Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz, and when I don't sit here Sunday afternoons chatting with you, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. I think that that is the science that ties all the other sciences together because if you have an understanding of what molecules are like and what they can and cannot do, I think you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. All right, it is summertime. Boy, is it ever. It is hot out there, and there are a lot of kids who are in camp, and they are drinking bug juice. I'm sure many of you remember that expression from your days in in, in camp. What is it? Well, it's a fruit punch served with meals, and it's generally made by dumping a flavored powder along with sugar into water. Now, why is it called bug juice? A couple of theories about that. At camp, the punch is often made in large garbage cans, and the sugar in the brew attracts flies and other bugs, hence bug juice. But there's another possibility. One of the most popular food dyes is carmine, a chemical that is extracted from the female cochineal insect. It is used in all sorts of foods and beverages. Oh, cherry ice cream is an example. Many fruit drinks are made uh, using uh, cochineal extract. And over the years, there have been all sorts of fruit-flavored powders that were colored with uh, this extract, and that may have given rise to the bug juice term. You know what? There actually is a commercial drink called bug juice. I don't think you can get it in Canada. Uh, It's available in the U.S. Um, I try to get it, actually. uh, It's available on Amazon, but they don't deliver to Canada. I just wanted it for its historical importance. But actually, as it turns out, it is not colored with cochineal. It's colored with red dye number 40. Well, while the origin of the term may be up in the air, it is safe to conclude that nutritionally, bug juice doesn't have much going for it. However, in the future, we may be serving up another type of bug juice, one made from insects, one that may help feed the 9 billion people who will be coming for dinner by 2050. This means that we will have to almost double our food production. And uh, we have to look for novel types of food. Why? Because the fact is that animal agriculture has a huge environmental impact. There are already huge swaths of land that are used to grow feed for, for animals instead of using feed to grow people. Uh, Well, one answer to this problem of how do we satisfy the hunger of 9 billion people for more food is in uh, entomophagy, which is the practice of eating insects. The term derives from the Greek entomon for insect and phagine, meaning to eat. Insects can be very nutritious. They are relatively easily farmed and have a much smaller environmental impact than meat. And they're a good source of protein. Really, a kilo of crickets has about 205 grams of protein, and that isn't much less than beef. Beef has about 250 grams per kilogram. But here's a big difference. Cattle require about 8 kilograms of feed to produce the 1 kilogram of meat. Crickets can produce the same amount from just 2 kilograms of feed. 
Raising insects instead of cattle requires less land for growing feed. And, interesting enough, crickets are not particular about their diet. They will eat any sort of plant and fruits and vegetable wastes that cattle would not touch. And insects reproduce quickly and produce a tiny fraction of the greenhouse gases that cattle produce. But, of course, in general, there is the yuck factor. Let's face it. In general, our mouths do not water at the thought of eating insects. Uh, it is, however, possible to produce acceptable meals. And, and uh, I had an experience with that a couple of years ago. I was at a conference in Guelph. And uh, one of the sessions was uh, totally um, directed towards uh, uh, eating insects. And a chef prepared a meal. And every course of the meal had some sort of insects. I mean, there were chocolate-covered grasshoppers. There were uh, grub stews. Uh, there were grasshopper uh, concoctions. And I cannot say that uh, it was one of the most enjoyable evening feasts that I ever had. But neither was it totally disgusting. Uh, in fact, I mean, most of the time you could not uh, tell the insects. So, you know, it's not that uh, you could see the grasshoppers in there. Although certainly in, in Mexico, it's very common that they eat fried grasshoppers, you know, the whole body. Uh, so it is interesting. And now new impetus may be given to this whole idea of eating insects by a study from the University of Teramo in Italy. And... Uh, some people may, you know, have an increased appeal for dining on insects after looking into this. Researchers investigated the antioxidant potential of various creepy crawlies and uh, came up with some surprising results. Antioxidants have great commercial appeal, although often the hype is generally outdistancing the, the science. But let's face it, antioxidants are important. Why am I talking about this? Because this study was based on finding the antioxidant capacity of a variety of insects. So what are antioxidants? Let me try to simplify this, uh, this for you. Uh, they're chemicals that are capable of donating electrons to electron-poor species, such as the notorious free radicals. In the body, free radicals form during ordinary metabolism, but are generally kept in control by naturally occurring chemicals that we call antioxidants, such as vitamin C, vitamin E, glutathione. All of these are capable of satisfying the free radicals' hunger for electrons. If that hunger is not satisfied by antioxidants, then the free radicals will endeavor to steal electrons from other molecules, such as proteins, fats, or nucleic acids. Since electrons are the glue that hold molecules together, free radicals can tear these important biomolecules apart, and that results in a variety of health issues. That process is termed oxidative stress, since oxidation is defined as a loss of electrons, which is just what is happening to these biomolecules. In other words, they are being oxidized. Free radicals, therefore, can be referred to as oxidizing agents and any species that neutralizes them as antioxidants. Oxidative stress occurs when there are more free radicals being produced than can be mopped up by antioxidants. There are several laboratory techniques that can determine the antioxidant potential of a chemical or a mixture of chemicals. And these Italian scientists extracted a variety of insects, ants, grasshoppers, caterpillars, silkworms, crickets, with a variety of solvents and studied the antioxidant potential of the extracts. 
They actually didn't stop at insects. They even looked at tarantulas and scorpions. What did they find? The antioxidant capacity, that is the ability to neutralize free radicals of crickets, caterpillars, silkworms, and grasshoppers, was greater than that of orange juice or olive oil, both of which are good sources of antioxidants. Grasshoppers and black ants are particularly rich in polyphenols, a class of antioxidant. 100 grams have about the same amount as 100 grams of orange juice. This is the finding that the media seized upon and tried to make the case that free radicals have been implicated in many diseases, ranging from heart disease to cancer, and they came up with silly headlines like, Eating ants could protect against cancer. Well, first of all, there's precious little evidence that an intake of antioxidants offers protection against cancer. It's true that plant-based diets are associated with a reduced risk of cancer when compared with meat-based diets, but it's not clear that antioxidants are responsible. Plants contain hundreds of compounds, and the answer may lie not in what vegetarians and vegans are eating, but in what they are not eating, that is meat. Second, there is the question of amounts. While 100 grams of orange juice may have the same antioxidant capacity as 100 grams of ants or grasshoppers, it is far easier to consume 100 grams of juice than to eat 100 grams of insects. If you don't believe me, just give it a try. And insect powders and various concoctions are available. You can look on Amazon and you'll find all kinds of concoctions. Give it a try. You'll be doing some good for the environment, uh, although there may be a little disturbance of your taste buds. All right. Uh, it's science time, and it's summertime. So let's have a little summer science fun. What does that mean? You give us a call. I'll ask you a couple of questions, and uh, we'll go on from there. Let's see if we can uh, ferret out some really smart people who can answer some interesting questions about science. Now, just to get things going, uh, let me pose uh, a question, sort of a, a qualifier. In 1941, Albert Alexander, a British policeman, was the first person ever treated with this drug after scratching his face on a rosebush. What was that drug? If you know the answer, you have qualified, and we will have some fun. All right, you're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, and we will be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's go to David. Hi, David. Yes, hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Okay, so what's the answer? Well, I believe uh, it was probably penicillin because um, that was, um, you know, a big lifesaver during the Second World War. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That British policeman was the first person ever to be treated with penicillin. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that story. But since you knew that answer, I'm going to give you another question. Uh, what chemical's name derives from the Greek for green and the Latin for ant? Oh, boy. Um, I know a little bit of Latin. Well, you know the, do you know the Latin for ant? Uh, et, E-T. No, ant, uh, the uh, Latin for ant is formica. Oh, oh, okay, that kind of ant. Yeah, Sorry. that kind of ant. Okay, I thought you meant A-N-D. Okay, so, uh, well, formic acid then? No? No, because no, it also has to have the Greek term for green in it. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, All right, we're going to leave you hanging there. 
All right. But we'll leave this question out there for our next qualifier. So whoever knows the answer to that, get on the line. What chemical's name derives from the Greek for green and the Latin for ant? And in the meantime, let me talk a little bit about penicillin. Sold for 23,000 pounds, cried the auctioneer at the famed Sotheby's auction house in London. And the elated winning bidder, representative of the Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company, rushed forward to claim his prize. Didn't look like much. Just a simple glass slide with a few black smudge marks. What made it so valuable was the inscription on the back. The mold that makes penicillin, it said. And there was also a signature, Alexander Fleming. This little historic relic had been given by Fleming to Dan Stratful, his laboratory assistant, sometime after the momentous day in 1928 when he discovered penicillin. Pfizer was one of the companies involved in eventually bringing the drug to market and was thrilled to acquire this landmark sample. Alexander Fleming's accident discovery of penicillin is one of the most often related scientific anecdotes. Unfortunately, it is usually oversimplified to the point of inaccuracy. Penicillin was certainly not an overnight success. The 15 years between Fleming's original observation and the commercial production of the drug featured a number of events which would prove to be critical in leading to the world's first miracle drug. Besides a group of scientists at Oxford University in England and another at the U.S. Agricultural Research Lab in Peoria, Illinois, important roles would be played by a miner's eye, firebombs, a rosebush, some bedpans, and a moldy cantaloupe. Fleming trained as a surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital in London, but never pursued the profession as a career. That's because he was a crack shot with a rifle. After graduation, he was looking around for a surgical position when he was approached by the captain of the rifle club at St. Mary's, who was desperate to improve his team. He convinced Fleming to stay and take a position in the hospital's inoculation service. <clears throat> that Fleming made his first important discovery. Having personally seen the misery caused by infected wounds in World War I, Fleming began to look for substances that were effective against disease-causing bacteria. One day, a teardrop fell onto one of his cultures and killed some of the bacteria. Fleming isolated the active ingredient, lysozyme, and realized that since it was found in tears, it was unlikely to harm human cells. It didn't, but neither was it effective against disease-causing bacteria. But the experiment did prime Fleming for his famous discovery on September 3, 1928. Having just returned from a vacation, he noted a mold growing in a culture dish of staphylococci bacteria. More importantly, the bacteria around the mold were dead. This mold spore, which had probably drifted in from the mycology lab on the floor below his, was apparently releasing some chemical that was toxic to bacteria. Within a year, Fleming identified the mold as penicillin notatum, coined the term penicillin for the active ingredient in what he had first called his mold juice, and published his account in highly respected British medical journal, The Lancet. He then set his assistants, Frederick Ridley and Stuart Craddock, the task of isolating the active ingredient from the penicillin mold. They found penicillin to be very unstable and only managed to make crude extracts. At this point, Fleming lost some of his interest, especially after noting that penicillin was powerless against the bacteria that caused 
and bubonic plague. He never did become involved in any human penicillin research, but he did play a role in a penicillin cure. Craddock had gone on to become a country doctor and was often visited by Fleming. He just happened to be there when one of Craddock's patients mentioned that his dog was dying of a foot infection. Fleming sent to London for one of his crude penicillin extracts and applied the powder to the dog's foot, and the infection disappeared. But Fleming's influence did not stop with country canines. Apparently, he was a terrible lecturer so that his students had to look up the original papers to which he referred instead of relying on lecture notes. And so it happened that Cecil Payne read Fleming's original paper about penicillin and became totally enthralled. Payne, though, was set on becoming a practicing physician, not a researcher. A couple of years later, while working at the Royal Infirmary in Sheffield, he was asked to see a minor who had lacerated an eye and developed a terrible pneumococcus infection. In those days, this usually meant removing the eye, but Payne decided to give Fleming's mold a try. He irrigated the man's eye with a crude extract of penicillin and managed to save his sight. Encouraged by this, Payne used his preparation to treat the eye of a baby who had contracted gonorrhea from his mother at birth. And again, penicillin did the job. So why is Spain hardly ever mentioned in accounts of the history of penicillin? Simply because he never published his work in the scientific literature. Later, Payne would explain that since he was using a crude extract and had not carried out sufficient experiments, he did not think his work met the criteria for publication. Luckily, though, while at Sheffield University Hospital in 1932, Payne met a newly appointed professor of pathology. In conversation with Howard Florey, he mentioned his experience with penicillin. The professor seemed to take little interest at the time, but the seed which six years later would sprout into a program of Oxford University that was the change history had been planted because it was then that penicillin was extracted from the mold and began to be used as a medicine. We've got to take another break. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we have some people on the line who are going to try to answer my question about the chemical that derives its name from the Greek Greek word for uh, green and the Latin word for ant. But even if uh, someone answers this question correctly, the rest of you stay on the line, and I'll ask you another question. So we will go to Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you, Dr. Joe? Good. So what do you think it is? I think it's chloroform. Yes, it is. Chloro, of course, is the Greek for green. And uh, form is the uh, word for uh, ant. <clears throat> and why do you think that uh, the word for ant has anything to do with uh, chloroform? No idea. <laughs> well, believe it or not, chloroform was first identified in the squashed extract of ants. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's and chloroform was one of the first anesthetics ever used, introduced in the 1800s uh, by James Simpson in England. And it rose to fame when Queen Victoria gave birth to Prince Leopold under the influence of chloroform uh, anesthetic. Interesting. Yep. And, you know, at that time, there was a great deal of opposition to use of chloroform in childbirth because uh, religious authorities suggested that uh, the Bible said that women were supposed to bring children forth in pain because of evil's si- uh, Eve's sin of uh, uh, giving the apple to Adam. 
And uh, so there was a lot of opposition against the use of chloroform. However, once the queen uh, consented to use chloroform as an anesthetic, uh, the opposition disappeared because the queen was pretty close to God and it was good enough for the queen. It was good enough for everyone. And chloroform made its entry into the world of anesthesia. And it stayed there until the 1950s uh, when better anesthetics were developed. And uh, believe it or not, I remember this very well because uh, back in Hungary in 1954, I had my uh, tonsils removed using chloroform as an anesthetic. I remember it very well. The the doctor just uh, uh, picked up a bottle and uh, spilled a liquid onto a piece of gauze, put that over my mouth, and that's the last thing that I remember. And um, amazingly, I also set a record at that time uh, because the surgeon removed the tonsils in about a minute and a half, which at that time set a record for tonsil removal. But uh, tonsil removal these days is not done so uh, often because uh, it turns out that it really is unnecessary. You can very often just use antibiotics to solve the uh, problem. Okay, very good. So now you have a little bit of insight into chloroform. Okay, uh, let's... uh, Let's go to uh, Sophia. And Sophia. Sophia? Yes. Hi. I guess you, you knew the answer to that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we'll uh, taunt you with uh, another question. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, how about this one? The name of this uh, chemical company came from the uh, family name of the founder of the wife of the company. And the very first product that was sold by this chemical company was saccharin. So we're looking for the name of the chemical company whose first product was saccharin. And the name of the company came from the name of the founder's wife's maiden name. And a clue is that she was Italian. She was Italian. And it is certainly a chemical company that you have heard of. No, I don't know. Not Italian, for sure. I know German. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. We'll uh, we'll go and uh, see if uh, Patrick knows that one. Hi, Patrick. Patrick, I guess Patrick didn't know that one. Okay. Uh, get on the line if you know the answer to that question. So we're looking for the name of the chemical company. The first product that it ever sold was saccharin, but the company's name came from the maiden name of the wife of the founder. She was Italian. And I would think that if you know the name of any one chemical company out there, this is the one that you would know. All right. Let's see. Someone else has uh, got the answer to uh, to this one. Uh, the... Lines are blazing, as Neil McKinty used to say. And many of you, of course, will remember Neil McKinty, who was the uh, CJD host for many years of the uh, of the morning show. Okay, let's go to Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Is it Monsanto? Yes, of course it is Monsanto. Yay. And uh, there is, again, a, a footnote to that story, and that is that the Monsanto company no longer exists. Who was it purchased oh. by? Oh. Probably the second most famous chemical company. <clears throat> Maker, makers of aspirin. 
called Bayer? Bayer, yeah. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Bayer, Bayer bought uh, uh, Monsanto, and they are having second thoughts about uh, that purchase because, of course, all of the lawsuits that are being brought against the company now uh, on account of Roundup or, or glyphosate. I mean, I think most of those are not scientific, but... Uh, so goes the world. All right. We'll say that you got that right. So I will come up with uh, another uh, question for you. Uh, what is the connection between cloves and dentists? Cloves as in the spice? Yes. Cloves? Yeah. Uh, did they use it as a pain relief or something to do with that in the past before uh, anesthetic was Okay, I'll I'll get I'll give you that one. Uh, you know that when uh, it's not only in the past, you know that when they give you an injection uh, right. for dental work, uh, they swab the gum before. Yes. Okay. Well, what they're swabbing with is an extract of cloves, uh, which contains eugenol, because eugenol oh. is a, a painkiller. So huh. it it still it still is used, and uh, at one time little little pads made with uh, eugenol were available in pharmacies so that if you had a toothache, you would uh, just you know put it on the gum beside the tooth in order to try to curb the pain. All right. So, so we will give you good. that one. Okay. Terrific. Uh, all right. So it means that you're going to get another question. Uh, John Dalton, who was the originator of the atomic theory in the 1800s and basically described atoms as little balls, not, not correct, but pretty good for visualization. Uh, he suffered from a physical affliction, and his physical affliction is commemorated in a French word still widely used today. So what French word derives from the name of John Dalton? Oh. Okay, I give you, I give you, I give you, I give you a clue. I give you a clue. Uh, John Dalton's friends used to irritate him by giving him red-colored socks. I haven't got a clue. No. Okay, we're going to Okay, we're going to leave that question out there for uh the next caller, but uh before we take that, we're uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Dr. Joe show. So again, let me mention that the question that we have hanging out there, John Dalton suffered from what physical affliction that is commemorated in a French word? All right, we'll take a break and we we'll right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar, hey, all right. calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley. Oh, hey, let's go to Marie Claire. Marie Claire? Yes, Dr. Joe. So what do you think? I know it's the word daltonier, which is the French word for colorblind. Exactly. And John Dalton was, in fact, colorblind, which is uh, why his friends used to... Uh, uh, eventually irritate him by giving him red socks. He he did not recognize the color, but others then started to make fun of him when he wore the red the red socks. Uh, so yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, story. Do okay, I get so another question. Yes, so I'm going to give you another question. Thank you. All right. When Emperor Napoleon III of France had very special guests, instead of using the usual gold cutlery 
they dined on cutlery made of wet metal, which at the time was deemed to be more precious than gold. Precious than gold. Well, I'll try pewter, but it seems strange if I'm right. <clears throat> no, no. Pewter, uh, pewter certainly was not deemed to be expensive. Pewter was a, a uh, an alloy of, of lead and tin, yeah. and uh, it was actually quite cheap. Okay, so well, no, that is, <laughs> that's not the case. All right, so we're going to need someone else to get on the line and answer my question about Napoleon III. And uh, instead of using gold cutlery, when he had very special guests, he served the meal with cutlery made of a different metal. The metal at that time was deemed to be more important or at least uh, more expensive than, uh, than gold. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, um, uh, what can I tell you? It's a, a, a channel, I guess you would call it, called BritBox, sort of like Netflix. And uh, I just got onto that. It's BritBox.com is where you get it. And uh, it comes from Britain. It's all British shows. And there's some really, really good ones uh, on there. I just tell you that because those of you who like science documentaries, you'll find a whole host of them on uh, uh, BritBox. And there's also uh, a series that I chanced upon called The Jury. And I find that really, really neat. Uh, it's, it's about a trial, but the focus is on the jury members and their life outside of the jury room and attempts by others to influence them, etc. Uh, anyway, I thought it was really neat. I'm just uh, uh, passing that on. Okay, let's go to Kathy. Kathy. Hi, Dr. Hi. Joe. How are you? Good. So what do you say? Good. I think it's platinum. No, it's not platinum. Oh, no. 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 It's not platinum. Uh, no, there, there would have been no platinum put, uh, cutlery at that time. Oh, shucks. Okay, thank you. All right. You. Have a good Very night. good. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, who do we have here? Hello? Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, who, who do we have? I'm sorry? You're on the air. Hi. Hi. So what, what do you say? No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, bronze certainly was not deemed to be more valuable than the gold. The Bronze Age came, you know, several millennia before her. So, uh, no. Okay, let us let me go to Cliff. Hi, Cliff. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, I would say uh, that it was probably sterling silver. No, it wasn't. I mean, silver was not thought to be more uh, expensive than gold. No, so that is not the okay. answer. Okay. All right. Uh let me go to uh, who do we have? Is that Ray? Who do we have? I'm not sure who we have there. Okay, who do we have here? <laughs> There's so many people on the line that I'm not sure who we're. Yeah, thinking. my name is Ivan. I have, a, I have an answer for Dr. Okay, Ivan. go ahead. Go ahead. The answer is aluminum. Yes, it is aluminum. And uh, aluminum at that time was a very rare metal. Yeah. Uh, today, of course, that is not the case. Uh, today, aluminum is cheap. It was the most widely used uh, metals. Uh, we certainly wouldn't be flying around in airplanes if we didn't have aluminum. But back in uh, in those days, it was very, very highly valued. Oh, yeah. And you, you, do you know what is special about the Washington Monument in uh, Washington, D.C.? Uh, I don't know. The top of it is a pyramid, a small pyramid. Oh. And that was made of aluminum. 
because at the time that was thought to be the most uh, expensive and most precious metal, and they wanted to top off the Washington Monument with the most expensive metal oh, oh. that was known at the time. But by, by the way, I went to school with you, Uchimahai. Oh, did you? Yeah, Ivan Gombos. Ah, of course, I remember you very well. Yeah, yeah, I went yeah. to school. Yeah. I couldn't resist the call. Ah, well, why should you resist? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that you were spectacular in math, right? That was fairly good in math. Yeah, so that, that's what you ended up teaching, college. right? At Dawson, yeah. Yeah, but nevertheless, uh, you know about uh, aluminum. Yes. <laughs> okay, and now you know even more than what you wanted to know. <laughs> That's right. I gained something. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me go to Helen. Helen, I guess you knew the answer to that, right? Well, Hel okay, let's go with that. All right, so I'm, I'm going to give you another question. Okay? Oh. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what synonym for the word scathing, scathing, derives from the ancient term for sulfuric acid. What's the name for the word what? Scathing. S-C-A-T-H-I-N-G. What's the name to the word scathing derived from? The ancient term for sulfuric acid. Uh, boiling, burning. No. No, no, no. I don't think you will get that by, by guessing <laughs> because this is something that you either know or you don't know. Thanks. Okay, Bye. anyway, thanks for uh, for playing along. Uh, the, uh, you think about it a little bit, and uh, I think you can come up with, with that. Ray. Hi, Ray. Yo. Yeah. Uh, great show, great show, and thank you for enlightening all the kids out there. Well, we're trying. Yeah. All right, so you heard the last question that I asked. Haven't got a clue. Probably my son, but he's in Ontario right now, so... Okay, well, that won't do you much good. No. <laughs> All right. You know what? You take care, Dr. Joe, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll listen to you next week. Well, listen, I'll be kind to you, and I'll give you another chance, okay? Thank you, buddy. Okay, so let me give you a, an, another question. Um, during World War II, the U.S. government requisitioned the production of what plastic solely for the war effort? Oh, 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 this is tickling a nerve. Um, okay, I'll, I'll be even more kind to you. I'm going to tell you that that plastic was uh, first synthesized by the chemist Wallace Carruthers at the DuPont Labs. And it also had, it had a special relevance to, la to ladies. Wax paper, no. No, it had special relevance to ladies and their legs. Nylon. Nylon, exactly. Nylon. Nylon. Yes, when they used to wrap it. Yes, yes, good. So, yes, nylon was uh, invented in the 1930s, and it was such a useful plastic that uh, uh, all of its production was geared toward the war effort. Uh, and after the war, of course, nylon stockings became uh, very right popular. Right on, right on. Okay? All right. So very you, good, Dr. Joel. You learned something there. Okay. So I hope that we have uh, educated at least some of you today with some of our... Uh, uh, questions here. It's always fun to have a little bit of a, a quiz, and uh, maybe we'll do this again. And you also learn something about eating insects. I'm not sure whether I tantalize your taste buds to go and order some concoction uh, from uh, Amazon or to find it in the supermarket because they are uh, increasingly uh, findable there. 
or perhaps even to lick a lollipop, which has a cricket embedded in it, which you can get uh, at various places around Montreal. All right, we're smack out of time. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and uh, we'll be back with you, same time, same station, next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>